to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. We're Team Shoup, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. Hi, I'm Matt Bush, the news director at Blue Ridge Public Radio, and I produce Going Deep along with the Shoops. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck in March, we at Blue Ridge Public Radio had to close our studios to all but a handful of staff. That meant the shows that come out of our station, such as Going Deep, had to take a break while we adjusted to our new normal, in much the same way you probably have too. Going Deep is back now, in a new expanded time slot, and John and Marsha are recording from their home just outside of Asheville ready to once again delve into the issues of faith, justice, and more in sports. The world has changed a lot since we recorded our last episode. We're glad to be back on this new platform and with the opportunity to go even deeper. That's right. Our pandemic episodes will be an hour instead of 30 minutes. That gives us more time to engage with the way sports are intersecting with the epic moment we're in on this planet. That's right. This moment when these twin pandemics are coming together, the chronic pandemic of racial injustice and inequity, and the coronavirus pandemic. This is the first episode of our pandemic platform, and we're excited to welcome Dr. Deborah Stroman. Dr. Stroman is a colleague and a friend, a UNC professor and sports business entrepreneur, and a scholar of equity and leadership. She's going to help us go deep into the intersections of race, COVID-19, and sports. Welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. And we are so excited to have this time to talk with Dr. Stroman about a lot of things going on um, around sports and race right now. We're excited too because this is our first going deep in the pandemic. And so there's a lot of other things that we're sure will come up in our conversation today, um, that sports have been really in the mix of this pandemic, haven't they, Dr. Stroman? Absolutely. Thank you very, very much to this power couple for allowing <laughs> me to come on and join you today. Can you uh, when, tell our, our listeners a little bit more about you? Yes, yes, definitely. When you think about the, I guess you could say, the interaction of the coronavirus and sports, It wasn't until the NBA made their announcement that we're not going to play. And that's when America woke up like, whoa, this is really serious. And so, yes, it is a very, very challenging time for our country in terms of health, safety and racial tensions. But I got into this field out of the womb. I came out as an athlete, uh, born and raised outside of Philadelphia. And then, as LeBron would say, I took my talents to Charlottesville. Uh, to the University of Virginia, where I played basketball there. And then that Tar Heel Blue got my attention after I spent a year traveling the country as a national director for the Volunteers for Youth program for the NCAA, which is their version of a big brother, big sister type program. I attended UNC 
and did my master's degree in sport administration. And then like a lot of athletes, we don't know what to do. So we go sell insurance. (laughs) I sold insurance and investment products and I was good at it. I really enjoyed marketing and sales. And I spent 17 years in the financial services space. And then the nerd bug kicked back in and I went and did my PhD in leadership and organizational behavior at Capella. And in 2007, I came back to UNC as a professor. And my um, academic degree, my doctorate is in leadership and organizational behavior. I applied that to racial equity education, where I currently teach in our Gilling School of Global Public Health. I teach our graduate students the racial equity curriculum. And then keeping that sport business uh, spirit alive, that passion for it, I have my own business and the I guess you could say the, the bulk of the work is, in, is done through my center. I have a center of sport business and analytics where we just talk about everything. We do teaching around instruction with football and basketball analytics. We talk about race and sport. Uh, it's just a wonderful opportunity to bring those two together. And uh, I do spend quite a bit of time uh, doing racial equity workshops as well. Uh, around the country. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. And well, and it, and I mean, just so much of what you do makes you just so perfect to speak into these times. Um, and it's, it's kind of even hard to know where to start. I mean, we've been friends and colleagues for years. We got to UNC just to just a minute before you did, really. Um, and then when everything blew up at UNC with the NCAA investigation, we all bonded and <laughs> got even closer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we kind of reconnected a few days ago just around the op-ed that John and I wrote about um, the UNC athletic department and athletic director Baba Cunningham's comments that he didn't understand why racism was... Um, still so um, still thriving in the United States and our main point in the op-ed was well look at your athletic department because it's alive and well there and we pointed out some things about white supremacy just in athletic departments in general around revenue sports I wonder if you can speak a little bit just again to our listeners about what are some of the kind of boilerplate issues that you would say exist, not just at UNC, but across the board and especially power five athletic departments that are revenue generating athletic departments. Yes. So I think that part of the issue or concern is that we have so many people in our country who have not actually been taught what race is, what structural racism is, you know, defining bias, discrimination. And we use those terms almost interchangeably when really they have very, very distinct definitions. And when we have a K through 12 system, school system, public school system, that not what Debbie Stroman would say or not what the Shoops would say, but leading researchers and scholars, whether we're talking about the organization of um, economics and cooperative development, whether we're talking about McKinsey and Company, whether or not we're talking about our local uh, education officials who say that our public schools are failing. They are mediocre. And yet, when we talk about history, when we talk about social studies, when we talk about philosophy, political science, we're not talking about this. And then people grow up 
and then they go to college. And unless you're going to major in a particular field, and I won't even say that African-American studies or American studies, that they even teach this. And so then they graduate and lo and behold, they become general managers, they become athletic directors, and they haven't been taught. Now, the only problem with that is when you have people in these positions of power and leadership and they don't raise their hand and say, I don't know. But instead, because of their title, their position, their money, they feel like, you know what? I can address this or I don't see this, right? They have no idea how race and racism was created, how it's structured, how it lives in their organizations and institutions. And again, the most sad part is that they won't raise their hand and say, I don't know. And so, yes, we have a power uh, dynamic going on where we do have people with authority, with, top, with titles, and they're not willing to admit what they don't know. And if they do say, we're going to do something about it, as you know, they'll just check the box and they don't really want to go deep. Um, now, I personally believe that a lot of that is based on fear. They feel that you know, that old, what, Econ 101 law that we learned, the law of scarcity, that there's not enough. And so they feel that if we do something for brown and black people, then that means we're going to lose something. And so how does this all show up? Wow. So we're talking anything from hiring practices. Who's on the search committee? Are the people that they want to hire only look like themselves? All right. How does this show up in terms of resources? Now, we know that football pays the bills in college sports. There are some schools where you have a very strong basketball program, men's basketball program. But by and large, by and large, men's back, excuse me, football pays the bills. Now, we know about March Madness and the money that's generated there. That's a whole nother conversation. But college football, and especially when you look at the starters, you're talking about 90% of those young men, power five, big time football, are African-American, they're black. And so you're asking them, again, when we do critical analysis, go deep, that they're paying the bills for these broad-based programs, 28 sports, 26 sports, 24 sports. And so they're paying the bills for ice hockey, for uh, field hockey, for wrestling, for tennis. And that's the reality. And so we've got those types of inequities taking place. So those are just two examples, hiring, and then we talk about the pressures that are on young African-American men to foot the bills for college athletics. Thank you for that. And I think you're, that is so on point. I want to talk first if we can, a little bit about hiring. And I think it's interesting that you went to the University of Virginia and you're now at the University of North Carolina. In my mind, I've always kind of held those two places as comparable, recruit similar students. Mm -hmm. Yet, the University of Virginia has done a much better job in terms of hiring and been much more intentional about uh, 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 hiring uh, black people in leadership positions than the University of North Carolina. Uh, the athletic director at UVA right now is uh, 
a black woman. Uh, the previous athletic director was a black man. They have had a black head coach in Mike London of the football team. None of those things have happened at a comparable institution like UNC. And I was wondering if you could dig into what steps did UVA take, in your opinion, to recruit, prepare, find such candidates that UNC is just oblivious to? And I'll add something to that question. And did that really change anything about yeah. the culture there? Indeed. Mm. So when I first got to UNC, and again, I went there for the academics because I had spent four years hating Chapel Hill, right? <laughs> ABC, anybody but Carolina. And so it was not easy for me to be affiliated with the athletic department and being the first black female coach at UNC. I coached along with Jennifer Alley. These were before the Hatchell days and the Banghart days. And so I had to learn how to love the individual athlete, the individual support staff, the individual coach, because I, had, I, was, I was raised to not like Carolina. And one of the most difficult sporting moments for me is being on the Carolina staff and beating my team, my former coach, Coach Debbie Ryan. But there's one thing that's unique, and I would tell people this when I first got to UNC and how I would observe and see the differences. One thing that's unique about, um, well, not unique, but it's, um, it describes UVA. Carolina has a mandate by the state that they must have about 82% of their undergraduate students from the state. And so the culture is very, very North Carolinian. All the greatness of North Carolina and all the struggles and baggage of North Carolina, 82%, that defines the culture. At Virginia, it's almost the opposite. And the numbers continue to change. But right now, you are definitely going to see probably 70 some percent, 65 to 70% of the students there from out of state, which means out of the country. And so you're bringing in people that don't necessarily look like one another. And that can, has a big effect on culture. Now, is Virginia still in the South? Yes. Does it still have that Southern, you know, culture? Absolutely. Are there uh, racism problems there? Absolutely. But I would point number one, that is a big difference. When you have people who have gone to school there, who become alums, who work their way up to the, um, the, the politics of the state, and they've been with someone who was from Brazil. They've been with someone who, uh, an African-American or an African, you know, that just changes how you think. And I think you two are great examples that you spent time with people who didn't look like you. And so your awareness changes. Now, my opinion is your awareness changes for the better, right? It's a positive thing to hang around with people and learn to love people who don't look like you. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges with Carolina. The other thing is that because of the politics of the state, and we know we have the UNC system, which means that each school has its own board of trustees, and then you have the board of governors, and then you have the governor. And they have a lot of control. In fact, many would argue too much control over what happens on campuses. And so once you have the culture, and thank you, John, for lifting up the fact that not that Carla Williams is an African-American AD, 
but the fact that she followed an African-American male. I mean, that's just, I mean, next to Vanderbilt, I say Virginia and Vanderbilt are the two schools that we lift up in terms of this space with college sports and how they are empowering and how they are um, having opportunities available for, uh, for black people. And specifically, what things is or UVA and Vanderbilt doing in terms of recruiting uh, those those people? So many times, and it's happened to me in the NFL. Uh, you know, I came up in the NFL, and presently, three NFL head coaches uh, are, are black. And one NFL general manager is black. That's four out of 64 of the big decision makers. Whereas the percentages of players in the NFL are two thirds are black. And the reason has been said to me oftentimes, well, there's no good candidates. There's no good candidates. We can't find uh, black candidates to be head coaches. And I've always argued 70% of the head coaches in the NFL come from offensive coordinator or quarterback backgrounds. We need to be more intentional in hiring quarterback coaches that are black, offensive coordinators that are black, of which there's only two quarterback coaches in the NFL right now that are black, two offensive coordinators in the NFL right now that are black, only one of which calls the plays. And so I'm not certain that the NFL is creating the pool of candidates for head coaching positions if 70% of the head coaches come from those positions. What could the NFL do? What is Vanderbilt and Virginia doing on on levels removed from, you know, on lower levels of uh, 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 jobs and positions that are helping them find these candidates? Well, thank you for that. And again, I don't want to make it seem that Virginia and Vanderbilt have it perfect. They don't. They are struggling as well. But clearly, they've made a statement across the sports world in their belief that, number one, because I think this is a humanity issue. It's about humanity. When you look across the table and you see someone that doesn't look like you, do you see the God in them? Do you see that they have the capabilities to do what you've never seen before done at your university? And so I think it's a humanity issue first. The second is we have to remember in sports that sport is a copycat operation, right? You know, you look at what Belichick has done at the Patriots. So everybody's trying to figure out his formula. You look and see what uh, Kentucky has done. And now Coach K's doing it and other schools are doing it as well. Just get the five-star recruits. And if they stay for a semester and take you to the final four and they're gone in the spring term, so be it, right? So everybody's starting to try and copycat that. Now, that's more difficult because there's only a limited number of these five-star athletes who are ready for the NBA. But what we do in sports is that we copy those who are successful. So starting with Vanderbilt, starting with Virginia, maybe we'll start seeing those more specific uh, uh, changes. In particular, understanding that do you really want to win? Now, the old narrative, and it has worked. I mean, look at Bear Bryant. Uh, look at what Coach Roy Williams has done. You know, look at uh, Bayheim up at Syracuse. Um, it works. 
But right now we have a changing dynamic. Everything from technological advances, where people are more tuned into their smartphones and their computers than they are in building relationships. We have this Generation Z that is just fired up about anything, right? We've got uh, things that are happening in terms of uh, the demographics. Where are you going to get football players? If white parents are saying that we've got a safety issue and we don't want to have our sons play that sport anymore. And so we're seeing more and more youth football numbers going down. And the sport of football is becoming more and more brown and black. And so, again, we've got the changing of the demographics within the sport. We've got the technological changes. We've got people paying attention to humanity. And so it's almost like the train has gone down the track. And it's great if you were the first ones on the train, but I don't care if you get on stop number five or stop number 85. Just get on the train because your program will suffer. And now, again, with technology, more and more people are talking about it. Don't go to that school because they're antiquated, they're not growing, and they're not supporting the Black athlete. I think that is a really huge point. Again, it's a more pragmatic kind of entrepreneurial point that you're going to get left behind if you don't if you don't understand the importance of it's more than representation it's about yes. um it's about power and um you know who has power to make decisions and create culture i also wonder if we can take a step back a kind of macro step back away from representation and look at some of the marks of white supremacy, because I know we've been in athletic departments and we've been in um, on NFL teams and stuff where you might have more representation of people of color, um, but the culture is still very white. And, um, and that shows up in still the way decisions are made. That shows up in the way thinking is done. Um, you know, we, some of the marks of white supremacy culture from Tima Okun's work, things like paternalism, either or thinking, um, top down decision making, those who have the, the have, those who are the most impacted by a decision have the least power in making the decision. Um, you know, things like only one right way and, and, you know, just some of the other ways that Sometimes people don't think of those as white ways. They think of them just as that's successful or that's the right way to do things or that's the responsible way to do things. And um, we have seen that culture, and we saw this at UNC, but we've seen it other places, that culture, even when there are people of color in power positions, really create disadvantage for young men of color, um, especially because they really don't always have an ability to say what the impact of different decisions are or what would actually work better for them or what they actually really want in their lives, especially around learning and um, social life and friendships and things like that. Can you speak into... Um, 
as the train leaves the station around this kind of pragmatic piece and the optics of not having any people of color, is the train leaving the station uh, away from white supremacy as a successful way to build a business or a successful way to, to run an athletic department? Well, I'm really glad that you uh, delineated between white culture and white supremacy culture because white culture is not bad and it's not good. Black culture is not bad and it's not good. It's just a way of living. It's a way of being. And there are definitely certain characteristics around white culture that we lift up, we honor, we use, we need. And then there are certain things around black culture that we lift up, we need, we know, we appreciate. But when we talk about white supremacy culture, that's when we talk about the power, right? And who is having access and what the experience is once you enter into that culture. And there are people, again, who are caught up in white supremacy culture and don't realize how that culture just stifles everyone else, which a lot of people talk about. Because white supremacy, dare not say it, right? That alarms people. Oh, my gosh, you said white supremacy. But what we're not talking about enough is how white supremacy culture advantages people, and in particular, white people. And so we can spend all day talking about the oppression and the harm, the disparities, the inequities that are happening. But we don't talk enough about how white culture advantages white people such that it, it messes with their psyche as in I belong. This is my space. How dare you interrupt that? How dare you be in that position? How dare you be a quarterback or an offensive coordinator, right? Because white supremacy says that whites go first. Whites are superior. Anything outside of that, there's something wrong. And so that's what shows up, again, in all systems, whether we're talking about media, transportation, food and agriculture, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about education, we're talking about religion, it shows up. And definitely in the sport world, we would be completely clueless, you know, living in a cave if we didn't think that sport had white supremacy culture baked in. There's no way you could isolate it because some people feel that sport is a mirror of society or it actually leads society. In either way that you go, white supremacy culture exists. White men are receiving an extreme advantage. And right now we've been, we've been awakened by the numerous, numerous atrocities, but in particular George Floyd in the way that officer murdered him, more and more people are opening their eyes and saying, wow, this is not just about an individual officer. This is a system that is producing officers like this. And it actually lifts them up, right? Because we know the consequences of such historically have worked well for the officers. And so you know, I'm not one who believes in this, you know, good cop, bad cop, bad cop thing. I think a bad cop is a problem, but they are not the problem. They are not the problem. It's, it's structural. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. <laughs> yes.
And I would say the same thing in, a, in an athletic department. You know, like, um, I mean, one of the things that John and I have been noticing and commenting on again in the op-ed piece and other places is a lot of white head coaches um, or general managers or athletic directors coming out and saying, I stand against racism, Mm -hmm. you know, and those words don't mean a whole lot Mm -hmm. unless you're actively working against the systems that prop up racism, which white head coaches and white athletic directors and white general managers, as you just said, are benefiting Mm -hmm. from these systems. So to, to truly, usher um, collegiate revenue sports and professional sports into an anti-racist posture around Mm -hmm. racism would mean that those coaches were saying some different things right now. Um, Not just I stand against racism, but wow, some things have got to change around here. (laughs) And and you're exactly right. And the measuring stick for that is money. Where yeah. is the money? Is, I think this statement is that a budget is a moral document. Amen. Amen. And so where, where are you putting your money? Mm-hmm. A budget is a moral document. What, yes. what a yeah. great, I say that at church you know, all the time. <laughs> uh, uh, capitalism and racism are, and white supremacy. And white supremacy are certainly in, intertwined in I forget exactly what I was going to say. Well, we, were talking, we were talking about all the head coaches the, saying, you got me I, stand, with the, uh, uh, I stand against racism. Yes. Yeah. Well, to say you stand against racism, yet do nothing about it, is really hurtful to me. I mean, that is, they're just words. Words without actions are, are nothing. I, I sometimes, I can remember vividly, I can remember an offensive lineman telling me one time, I'm the most disciplined guy that we have on this team and I should be starting. And I said, well, you jumped off sides three times in the first half. You're, you're not disciplined. You don't get to say that you're a disciplined player if you jump off sides three times. Well, in my opinion, it's the same thing. You can't say that you stand against racism, yet at every opportunity you uphold these racist the status systems, yeah. these cultures, these institutions. To me, it's the same thing. They're, they're just words. And you could put something on your Instagram or you could tweet something, <laughs> but that is almost, uh, to me, is almost, more frustrating than uh, mm-hmm. or, or, what <laughs> I mean, it's it's so disingenuous it's so disingenuous that i get frustrated other other white people can't see it well what what do you mean for instance coach k just came out and actually really gave a two-minute speech on twitter that's been seen i think five million times so far and he says all the right words. It was good. I want to acknowledge that. I want to sit here and say, by the end of this interview, the entire landscape, the entire landscape of college sports could be changed if Mike Krzyzewski took action. Rather than just words, if he said, as for me, the players that I recruit at Duke, 
they're going to get paid a fair wage and they're going to be allowed to make money off their name, image, and likeness. If he said that, everything, in my opinion, would change. He's got the power to change it. And so in my mind, the video that he made, I, I get it. I, I agree with it but I wanted to just reach into it, Debbie and Dr. Stroman, and say, <laughs> well, do something. Do something. I can't do anything. He actually could well, you can, change you it. You can do something. I can. You're not coached today, I, I, but I, you I can. can do something. But he could actually change it within an hour, I believe. Well, there's no doubt that corporations, organizations, sport programs are making their statements and doing their videos. Uh, but, again, you have to have the action behind it. And there are a lot of people who operate as employees or student athletes in these organizations who realize and they just giggle and say, yeah, right. Now, Coach K, he has come out and said that he is for a name, image, and likeness. And we also know that Coach K has a lot of power, just like, again, your, your top 10, you know, men's basketball coaches. And so you can't be that lone wolf when you do this organizing. So... What I would like to see is that if Coach K were to team up with Coach Roy Williams and with Calipari and with, you know, all the other greats and say, we collectively would like to see some change. That's how you move the dial. Um, but yes, I certainly agree with you that this is about action. It's about, um, and I know this might scare some people, a redistribution of the revenues. Yes. There has to be an economic change. And whether that is allowing the athletes to make a little money through name, image, and likeness. Now, everybody mindful, these are outside people paying the athletes. The NCA is still not going to pay them a dime, right? Or the university. Or the university. Or universities, right. So it's, 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 it's a step forward, but we're still not getting to that, uh, that kitty of money. And I shouldn't say kitty. I said, should say a big cat. A big old, big old corn silo. <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting. You know, the athletic director at, at North Carolina, Bubba Cunningham, and Mr. White at Duke have really come out, and they have actually joined forces to try to limit this name, image, and likeness to such a point where the universities actually control what it is the players are allowed to do. And that's part of my frustration. But Roy Williams has more power than Bubba Cunningham at the University of North Carolina, and Mike Krzyzewski has more power at Duke than the athletic director. On a flow chart, the athletic director may be their <laughs> boss, but in real life, those, those arguably, Dr. Stroman, are the two most powerful people in the state of North Carolina. Arguably, they might be the two most powerful people in the state of North Carolina. I agree with you. If they collaborated to spread this system the way the athletic directors are collaborating to constrict this system, maybe there would be movement. Well, let's stay tuned. It might happen because right now I would have never thought that Mississippi was talking about changing their flag, right? We've got monuments going down across the country. We've got people coming together. The protests are the most multiracial thing we've ever seen, much more than our church services on Sunday. And so God is moving, right? So we'll see. We will see. Yes, yes. Well, if you 
had, you know, one other kind of point that you think needs to, mm -hmm. for any sports enthusiast to, if they want to bring an equity lens, if they want to do a power analysis to kind of how race is showing up right now in sports, what have we missed in this conversation? What, what is it that we need to make sure people are investigating a little bit more below the surface? So there's no doubt there's attention on those in the spotlight. And that is your coach. That is your athlete. But what I've been thinking about during this time period, because it really is an intersection, a Venn diagram of health, safety, and racism, is about those staff members. And I'm talking about the people who are cleaning up in these athletic departments. They are brown and black people who are wiping down the lockers, who are cleaning the equipment, are going to be asked to... Um, you know, sanitize rooms, places where the athletic department exists. Do they have adequate health care? Because right now there is a movement to dismantle the Affordable Health Care Act. Do, will they have time off? What, are there masks? Are they N95 masks? Or are they something that somebody, you know, so had sewn, you know, over the weekend? Will they get the time off? You know, what, what will they wear? You know, do they just put on a mask when they show up to work in their glasses, if they wear glasses? Or will they be given a full body suit and goggles and the appropriate hair covering? What type of meals will they be served? Right? So this is, this is the group of folks that I think that people are forgetting about. There's a lot of people that, that we both know that work behind the scenes to make an athletic team operate, to make an athletic department work. But when you combine safety and health with this, with the racial lens of who actually cleans these uh, facilities and buildings for the Power Five schools, that's who I'm paying attention to. It's an excellent Excellent point um, from Dr. Debbie Stroman, UNC professor and sports business entrepreneur. Um, you have helped us go deep today um, about some really pressing issues. And I agree with you, like there's something happening. God's doing some, some movement. Some things are stirring in a way mm -hmm. that maybe they never have. And, um, and so I, I do think I like what you said a few minutes ago about some say sports leads the way. Some say sports are a mirror, whichever it is sports. If this, if this mighty movement is truly going to transform our society, then that means sports will be transformed as well. And uh, I think all to the good, um, all to the good. And that's, it can become something that we celebrate and enjoy with the, with a clean conscience, maybe in a new way. So um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Stroman. It's so good to see you. Yes. We're, we're, this is going to be on the radio, but we're getting to see you via Zoom <laughs> as we do this. It's so good to see you. Again. And, and thank you for being our inaugural guest in the pandemic version of Going Deep. <laughs> thank you. And again, thank you so much for your spirit, your commitment to equity. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. And yours and your work. Blessings to you.
So that was a great conversation with Deb, and I wonder what's one of your takeaways, John? One of the things that stuck in my mind is her saying that a budget is a moral document. And it's something that you've said about the church as well. And I've always thought of it in terms of uh, put your money where your mouth is and wherever you invest money is you're really saying what's important to you. But thinking of a budget truly as a moral document, just that language is something that struck a different chord uh, than probably what I had experienced before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that struck me too, because she's talking about it in the context, not of a church or a religious organization, but of an institution of higher learning. Um, and I mean, you can pretty clearly see the conflict, right? And then an institution of higher learning that says its moral compass is trained toward um, human development and really helping people become their full selves. And in bundled in that, that culture, you also have a revenue producing business in collegiate sports. And so to, to overlay on that, that, you know, in a business setting that a, a budget is a moral document really challenges institutions of higher learning to, you know, to, to look at where are your, where are your funds flowing? Where do your resources get deployed? Um, and it's something that I don't think universities necessarily want to look at. Well, um, when they think about what their true identity is or their true priorities are. Well, we're starting to see universities at all levels, uh, uh, Furman just down the road, many Ivy League schools and Power Five conferences talking about having to get rid of Olympic sports. And if your budget is your moral document, is it really, is it really, that important that your running backs coach or your defensive line coach are making $600,000 a year, yet you have to cancel an entire, in Furman's case, baseball program, in uh, uh, other cases, cross country or uh, swimming and diving. Well, to me, there's... There's, there's no moral <laughs> dilemma. You don't need to be paying coaches and administrators in football and basketball that amount of money. You're making a decision that you would rather pay that money to those coaches and eliminate those sports. Don't. It, it's frustrating to me, these administrators that are now complaining that they don't have the budgets for these other sports. They do. They've just made the decision to spend their money on salaries. On salaries for, it's been my experience, many coaches that certainly uh, don't earn uh, that salary. Well, I mean, this isn't really about earning or merit, right? This is, this is, this is about a structure that 
that prioritizes white wealth. And even if some coaches of color are making, you know, six figure salaries, that's not really creating a different revenue stream or different wealth stream in revenue sports. Most of the wealth goes to white men. And so what Dr. Stroman is saying is that if a budget is a moral document, and indeed it is, then we can't, we can't continue to use this language as we're going to have to cut or we're going to have to do this. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to have to, we need to find some other language to name yes. what it is that's actually happening. We are prioritizing. Um, we are absorbing the revenue generated by these students, mostly students of color, um, in order to compensate, um, coaches in revenue sports to the tune of salaries at the level of um, what more than most Americans would ever dream of making. So that's the, that's what she's asking with mm -hmm. the whole idea of a moral document. Um, it's not about whether those coaches earn that money or not. It's not, that's not what this is about. This is about justice and equity and also the myth of meritocracy that, I mean, we, we certainly fed off of that myth while we were making that, you know, that kind of money, just saying that, well, you work hard, you work long hours, and it's just market value. And um, as, if, as if it happens in a vacuum, as if there is no structure in place that created advantage um, for you or for us leading up to that. And it, you know, one of my takeaways is her conversation around the way that this whole dilemma that we see in revenue sports um, around racial equity and racial injustice, it starts early. It starts in the way that, that minds are formed in America. And particularly, I would say the white mind, the formation of the American white mind around race and it's and the the impact on how then people use their power when they become professional they don't have a power analysis they don't have a way to understand the way racism works and the way white supremacy culture works they they see themselves in a vacuum i work hard therefore i earn what i make and if other people work hard then they'll too be rewarded um, because they haven't been taught a structure to think about how racism works. And I think that is such an important point. Um, and it's, a, it's another place where our, our public schools are failing, um, our society, our kids. Um, and it's another way in which, you know, parochial schools or schools that don't have the same regulations and curriculum demands can also just kind of shirk that conversation as well.
I appreciate you and Dr. Stroman talking about systems of race. For so long in my life, I've always thought of racism as one person performing a racist act against, a vulgar act against somebody else. And while that is a form of racism, what I've really learned really by doing a lot of hard work with you and in our community is that racism is a heck of a lot more about systems that promote white supremacy culture and keep other cultures down. And systems and institutions are what I think of a lot more now when I think of racism, not just one individual act of a person towards another. Right. But uh, something you said there is interesting. And I, again, Deb, Dr. Stroman's conversation around white supremacy culture, and she wanted to make a distinction between white supremacy culture and white culture. And I would really say that there is no such thing as white culture. Um, whiteness is an invention um, that, that was born in um, early colonial America and um, what was then colonial Maryland and Virginia. And it was, it was, um, a concept, whiteness was a concept born with an agenda to concentrate wealth, to concentrate wealth in the hands of the landed gentry, people who had land and wanted to keep it, people who wanted their labor to cost as close to zero as possible, which has continued to be um, an important part of American culture around labor and race, which are both embedded in the world of sports. But so white supremacy culture isn't about being from Scotland or something like that. It, it's, it's a capitalist enterprise. It is, it is a narrative um, and a value system that, that came up around anxiety around losing the ability to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few. And then it's like, which comes first, the chicken of, or the egg, okay? The desire to concentrate wealth came first. The concept of whiteness came second. And then racist concepts around people of color, people with black and brown skin came next. Racism didn't come first, and then wealth got concentrated because of it. Racism is a tool in the toolbox of wealth concentration. So it's different. To, there's something different to talk about black culture or uh, Latinx culture or something like that. There is no such thing as white culture that was not created with this capitalist impulse in, in tow. There's no such thing. 
So when, when a white person, when a white identified person hears about white supremacy culture and they take it as a, a personal affront, like I can't help it. I was born white. That's not what this is about. It's not about your skin color. It's about a culture that has formed us to not see the way that whiteness is advantaged mm. in our economy, in our justice system, in education. And, and so that's not, that's not about your DNA. That's about your socialization. And I'd love to talk to Dr. Stroman more about that someday, but I think it's a really important distinction. And, and therefore, white identified people have a real, we have a real vested interest in two things, two very different things. And we have to parse out where our, back to the moral document, where our moral compass is leading us because we have a vested interest both in maintaining this system because it's working for white identified people but I would say on a more existential level, on a moral level, we have a vested interest in rooting this out and transforming this. We're not just allies. We are carriers of a disease. And this disease is diminishing our lives as well as the lives of people of color. And, um, you know, the, the conversation around reparation in Asheville is a, an important one because it's about our budget. It's about our resources, but it's also about healing all people of the deficit and deficiencies that exist in our relationships and our ability to trust each other because of white supremacy, because of the institutions and structures that keep up racism's, they keep racism's teeth sharp and they keep it working. They keep it effective. Um, and that's that's there in sports and that's there in our government and that's there in our schools it's everywhere and um i'm so grateful for people like dr deborah stroman who are doing this work and inviting the likes of us to be involved in the work as well been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. 
Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.